ladies and gentlemen, children of all ages, welcome to their Fuds on Film podcast. I am Scott Morris. I'm joined today by Craig Eastman. Fairly well. And of course, Drew Tavendale. Hello. So today we're going to spend a bit of time bothering your ear holes with the curious phenomenon of old men starring in action films, uh, the kind of people that should really be drawing a bus pass that are now wielding gats and getting all up in people's area. Seems to be a rather curious phenomenon that's occurred lately. Uh, there's a few guys that are emblematic of this. Uh, we're probably talking about guys like Liam Neeson, of course Arnold Schwarzenegger returning to the fold, but I think perhaps the most obvious example, something one that really brought it to my attention, is good old Sylvester Stallone. So, yes, good, guess, old, <laughs> old <laughs> Sylvester Stallone. <laughs> I guess what really propped this up was back in, I think it was 2008, with the somewhat surprising return of Rambo to uh, the big screen, which... <laughs> really has then started a snowball rolling which no one seems able to stop and I'm not sure it's really a great thing well I, in 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 a way as a as a as a car crash show it kind of is a great thing and a lot of these films <laughs> that we'll talk about probably work far better than they have any right to do but yeah it seemed an unlikely proposition at the time right when Rambo first came out a lot of people thought he was insane but he kind of pulled it off yeah it's just unusual that the it's around about the time we were thought we were talking about who's going to hand over the batons to the next generation of action stars and it really turns out that most of these guys <laughs> have just kept the baton themselves yes they clearly <laughs> decided that the next generation and even the generation after that, after that at yeah. this point are clearly a bunch a bunch of pussies and <laughs> aren't up to the task as I, as I saw Rambo itself described in uh, in an IMDb <laughs> message board thread once <laughs> some of these <laughs> some of these young guys are just a bunch of nambla crap <laughs> I suppose seeing as we mentioned it we should maybe give Rambo a bit of a dissection because I, oh, I watched Nambla, this again no. <laughs> I watched this again last night and I remember watching it at the time and thinking well this is actually kind of works in terms of an action film mm. um, it's, it's doing most of the things right I watched it again last night and it is really quite brutal and mm-hmm let's say charitably simplistic I mean it's got some of the most cartoonishly evil bad guys in film history and to meet a suitably it, cartoonish end exactly I mean I, I somehow missed the, the original watching when Rambo actually rip, literally ripped someone's throat out with his finger try with his bare hands <laughs> it's like well I'm not really sure this is acceptable entertainment really <laughs> <laughs> it seems a little bit exploitative uh, I say when I watched it back in the day, I thought, well, this is this is kind of resolutely average, but you know, fair play to Stallone for breaking these barriers and going and pushing out these films. But uh, on retrospective viewing, it did seem really quite a nasty piece of work. It's quite cynically violent in places. Yeah, I think he would. He would probably have you. Um prefer to believe that well look I'm just depicting violence the way it is and there's there's a case to be made for that but when you're painting on a on a canvas <laughs> the scale a murderous canvas the scale of um, Rambo it kind of it kind of goes beyond making its point and sort of into the bizarre and then full full uh, full circle back round to being shocking again it kind of is crazy <laughs> it kind of is crazy I think I like to think he certainly proved his point that right there's there's life in the old dog yet but I also think a lot of it is probably um, a reaction on these guys part to I mean we we were lucky enough to be in our 
formative years, right, when uh, the action movie was in its heyday in the 80s, right? Mm-hmm. And we, we probably watched some crazy, crazy stuff happening at an age that we never should have done. And since then, the the commercial viability of uh, big studio films rests on as broad an audience as possible. And, and hence, you have these uh, films now which are pared down well, sometimes in destructive destructive scope, sometimes not, sometimes just without the blood, um, as yeah. I expect we'll probably talk about with some of the Expendables movies. Um, it's quite all right to have a ludicrous body count, um, so long as you don't show the bullet hits. Um, yeah. I, I think this is uh, this is just a reaction to the shoehorning of the uh, a lot of the action um, uh, the action genre being. Uh, Sorry, the shoehorning of the action genre into a PG thirteen slash twelve A certificate now for commercial reasons. Um, God damn it! You just you just you just don't get to see violence the way you used to do when we were young. No, I mean thinking about it, there's probably not a lot of things in Rambo that you wouldn't see in something like Commando, but somehow it you know Commando features people getting their arms lopped off and the same sort of way that Rambo features people getting dissolved by anti-tank rounds in certain places. <laughs> cut, in, cut in half by 50 calibre. Um, yeah. yeah, there's yeah. an impressive amount of splash damage on the machine guns. <laughs> mm. uh, yeah, but in a way that when I go back and watch something like Commando, it doesn't feel quite so mean-spirited as Rambo does. I'm not quite sure where I'm getting that from, but it just has a certain tone that is just relentlessly grim and nasty well, to it. I think because uh, Commando was overly comical, right? Um, not, I don't think intentionally for the most part, um, <laughs> yeah. but uh, certainly it turned out to be. And I think that that the ludicrous nature of it, whereas something like Rambo quite clearly sets out. And I think at the time, my my only concern with it, I mean, it's it's fine, kind of what it does is fine, and there's an audience for that. But the bit that disturbed me about it was the um, when the young kid in the village gets bayoneted. Yeah. And by young kid, I mean like four or five year old which I, I feel like you I think I made the comment at the time that I feel like you have to kind of work very hard to earn the right to show something like that and I don't I don't feel that this was the this was the forum for it but yeah I suppose ironically enough since then he's um he's gone on to the Expendables franchise right which yeah. the first entry I think a 15 certificate am I right sounds about right and I then think the following entries 12s I don't know Someone someone talk about The Expendables. The thing about The Expendables is The Expendables actually didn't sound like a bad idea. Mm. And I, I guess in total, the franchise probably isn't, but the first one is a quite poor example of it. The first Expendables, it was R-rated mm-hmm. um, in States. I can't remember if it was 15 or 18 over here, but... I'm sure it um, was a 15. It's... I think my main problem with The Expendables, and certainly came apart when I watched it again another week there, is that... Um, it's just can't decide on a tone. It mm. starts off with a basically kind of being quite cartoonish as well. I mean, it's not too far into the film before uh, I believe it's Dolph Lundgren's shotgun blasts someone in half again, <laughs> <laughs> and you get. Yep. I definitely got the impression that this was setting up for another Commando film. It was going to be a kind of a light-hearted romp as people go and murder That's their it. way through lots of enemies. It's ridiculously uh, overpowered weaponry. Yeah, and to be oh, fair, oh, oh. May- maybe half of it is, but the other half is trying to be uh, telling a, a relatively straight drama about uh, oppression and CIA activity in a, mm. in a small island, and that falls not, not so much flat. I mean, it's not... It, Neither half of those films is particularly bad, but when you you cut and shut them together, the welding doesn't hold up quite so well. 
Mm. Of course, what the series is probably most famous for is its cast, and that will kind of go through with the the rest of them. It follows through with these finally Sylvester Sloan, Jason Statham together mm. at last, along with Jet Li, Dolph Lundgren, Randy Couture. In the first one, you've even got Steve Austin of, yeah, of wrestling I f- fame. I forget he was in the Terry first one Cruise. actually. I, yeah, so I, I saw the first one quite some time ago, and I haven't had a chance to rewatch it before this podcast. But yeah, I'd completely forgotten he was in that. I guess as a excuse to watch some of your famous, your, your favourite action stars from, arguably from yesteryear, maybe not so much anymore, to get them to get together. I suppose it works on that level, but for me, the first one is probably the least effective of the whole uh, franchise. Mm. It just doesn't quite have a clear idea of what it's trying to do. Um, I think what I think was missing from the first one, which the the second two entries benefit from, in that they were obviously toned down by the studio to appeal to a wider audience, is that they kind of up the fun quotient, the kind of nudge yes. nudge wink wink uh, thing, and that actually serves those films better, I think, than the attempts at sort of camaraderie uh, in the first movie, especially between yeah. uh, Statham and Stallone, and with like Lundgren as this bizarre sort of outlier. Yeah. Um, left field <laughs> character, which is really quite, quite, quite odd. But um, uh, yeah, I think the first, the first film was sort of serviceable, and it's kind of a case to be made for it. I think it was a nice idea, and it, obviously that movie had at least had the good sense to be knowing in that. Well, yeah, the whole point of this, the clues in the title. Yes, we know we're old men, um, yeah. and this is kind of how we. This is probably how we feel about our place in the um, in the movie industry right now. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think at the time was. was did Schwarzenegger cameo in the first one? Or was that the second one? Yes. I think he did. Think he's he not appear in some building towards yes, the end. Yes, he does. Yeah, yeah no, he, didn't have a, a, he didn't have a bigger role until the second one, right? But even having like sort of a little Schwarzenegger cameo, because he was still very much um, ensconced as the, the governor of California at the time and had given up acting, right? Yes. So yeah, it had, it had a good idea, I think, the first movie, and it was certainly, I think, when it was announced, it was kind of like, yes, this actually... On some level, this actually makes perfect sense. I can't believe someone hasn't thought of this before. Yeah, it's kind of like um, the action movie Supergroup. Yeah, it put me in mind of the old um, proposition that there would be a Bond reunion film with all the old Bonds, where it would turn out that James Bond is just a code name, <laughs> and that these people yeah. all fulfilled the role at one point or another. Um, obviously, that never came to fruition, and I doubt it ever will. Yeah. <laughs> that really will be old man action. Um <laughs> But um, it's like, yes, why hasn't someone done this before? And uh, actually, an idea that has some potential, it was just just kind of let down by, as you say, Scott, um, a real lack of direction and not a not particularly great script. And honestly, I think sort of Stallone and um, Statham trying to riff off of each other. I think probably Statham does a, a better job than Stallone does, to be honest. That, that part of it kind of falls falls yeah. flat but um, the second and third entries at least were a little bit more fun I think yeah I think they've got a bit of clearer idea of where they want to shoot for uh, and a little bit more as you say levity the relationships between characters does seem to actually get a bit better as you might expect I suppose they've had a bit more time but they do seem a bit more believable uh, one of the problems with the first film as well was that it did have very various sections that were clearly set up to give Steve Austin his moment Randy Couture his moment yeah. Jet Li his moment and that still to an extent goes through the rest of them but it's a bit more organic in the way that a lot of it feels the second one its plot is arguably a bit more stupid um, it's got, I don't even uh, remember the plot this is the one with evil uh, Jean-Claude Van Damme who's coercing a, a village to 
run his uranium mines and he's you know kidnapping the men making them work and kidnapping the children and making them work I don't remember stuff. that at all so that, that that is really the set up more or less is that the expendables have to go in to stop him from his uh, warlord slash kidnapping antics and it <laughs> they need to save him from himself yes <laughs> and uh, yeah I think it works a lot better it's clearly a, a, a dumber film but it's much more enjoyable for that uh, has a clearer idea of where it wants to go. Some pretty good action scenes. Uh, I think a lot of the heavy lifting is done by Jason Statham again mm-hmm. in terms of just keeping it likable, but that's what Jason Statham does. That's why he's there. A lot of nice in-jokes of having uh, Chuck Norris as well in it as the, ever, the cast ever expands. That's uh, it, and larger roles for Bruce Willis and uh, Schwarzenegger in this one, right? Yes, yes. It's, it's only a real weak spot is... Uh, parachuting Liam Hemsworth in at the start and then <laughs> killing him off in short order to try and make you care and have a reason to care about the rest of the film Yeah. as um, if memory serves this is where uh, Jean-Claude Van Damme spin kicks a knife into his chest <laughs> <That's> <laughs> to kill him, right, yes. which of course is uh, something you cannot do the most efficient and practical base. methods of execution <laughs> <laughs> I can't believe that never took off in the States as one of the options for, uh, for state execution you, know, you have the chair, you can have a hanging, lethal injection, firing squad, uh, Van Damme spin kick with a knife. Yeah, I'll go for that one, it sounds great! <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's how he wanted to go out. That's it. Sorry, Van Damme's ill at the moment. Would you prefer Swayze <laughs> to rip your throat out? So, I mean, for me, a lot of the second one is basically what the first one, in my mind, should have been. Hmm. The third one, perhaps, is pushing it a little bit too far, but it still works in terms of being an entertaining uh, film, if not a good one. Well, the third one works hard to set up the sort of the next generation now, doesn't it? Which will yeah. kind of defeat, if that's what happens, that will kind of defeat the purpose of the Expendables, because yeah. they will no longer be old and decrepit. Um, <laughs> you're talking about people like Ronda Rousey, and um, who else is in there? Ba-ba-ba, their names have just gone right out of my head. There are not a lot of guys I know. I know Victor Ortiz. And, that's right, uh, Victor which, Ortiz. You've got? You got Glenn Powell, but I don't really can't remember what else is he's been in. Kellen Lutz. The, the new cast is certainly nothing like as recognisable as the old hands. No, no, no. So it'll be interesting to see what they do with that there. Although what I will say for the third one, um, like ludicrous, ludicrous body count aside for a 12 yes. circuit, it didn't even really sink in at the time. It was the next morning after I got out of bed. My first thought after getting out of bed, having watched that the night before, was, <laughs> Jesus, that film had a body count. For a yes. 12 certificate film. I think this is the biggest, biggest proponent of this debate to be had around look what really is the difference between something honestly how much of a difference does showing bullet hits make this is we can clearly see what's happening to these people if anything i mean some of the violence is probably more realistic because when you shoot people with a handgun they don't tend to explode in great red (laughs) gobs they tend to sort of fall over without much visible visible damage and so in many ways, the violence portrayed in this film is far more realistic yes. than in a film of a higher rating. And I think something of a body count over 200 or something, if I remember the IMDb facts page correctly. Yeah. It's insane. It's utterly insane. Uh, three was probably the most enjoyable, as far as I remember it, of, uh, of the trilogy. I think overall, as you say, Scott, it's kind of stretching some of the, some of the aspects of it a bit too far. And also there's a huge question mark over why the hell did uh, Jet Li even bother to turn up uh, when his entire role in the film lasts about two minutes and it's him in a helicopter with a machine gun. He doesn't (laughs) utilise his martial arts skills at any point. (laughs) Very odd. I can only assume that was a tax dodge or something. Yeah, a great great deal of fun. But um, So two questions. 
why are we allowed to show this to an audience of 12 year olds when it's quite insanely violent um, and B when when are we going to forgive Mel Gibson um, because he was actually pretty good in this yeah well, it was very difficult to forgive Mel Gibson because he's such an asshole um, <laughs> absolutely but the guy the guy is a charismatic presence um, and at some point surely either we have to just either we have to put our foot down and go no you just can't be in films at all or we acknowledge <laughs> that he's shown he's he's been penitent and let's just let him have some fun again because the guys the guys are for obviously all of his ills aside he is a, he's a hoot and he's a genuinely charismatic screen presence and i mean as limited as his role in this is he is the most fun thing in it um and i think he's one of the best things in it and i kind of i kind of feel like we can start to give him an opportunity again well it's the old thing of whether you can uh Hold an artist separate from you know his actual persona. Uh, yeah. His artist separate from his persona, which is something you struggle with, particularly a lot of writers, because a lot of writers tend to have, you know, they can produce very good books, but then they also turn around and be you know absolute abysmal crazy humans. people. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Arson Scott Card, for instance. Yeah, exactly, absolutely. Exactly the person I was thinking of. Yeah, yeah, and I don't know. Mel Gibson's has his mistakes, but it seems like a lot of them are just rooted in being drunk. So yes, maybe maybe we can forgive him. And there's a, there's certainly any number of very obnoxious drunk-based actors who who wind up still getting roles, like um, maybe Russell Crowe, who's yeah an, another appalling person, but you know a good actor. So maybe it is time. Maybe it's time we just have an amnesty for poor old Mel. I think so. I think so. And ov- obviously, as Scotsman, he's given us, in particular, such a, <laughs> <laughs> such an important cinematic legacy, such a cultural milestone. Absolutely, or millstone, maybe with his with his historically impeccable um, presentation of Braveheart. Yeah, um, but but that aside, I mean, am I alone in thinking probably three is the, probably the most fun instalment? It's. It's probably the biggest. Um, it's, it's the most flashy. Possibly think two's marginally better, but you know, it's, they both are what they are, and what they are is you know, fun, brainless action movies. You could you could barely distinguish between the two on that basis from for my thinking. There you go. There you go. Uh, I suppose while we're sticking on the subject of Stallone, we're, I kind of glossed over the slightly earlier example would be Rocky Balboa. Uh, which I, I didn't put on because it, that is a film that is very clearly making hay out of him being old. It's the central yes. ten of it. So that that kind of doesn't quite count. But of course, he's had other films in the intervening time. Things like uh, his other uh, his his other appearance with uh, Sylvester Stallone in Escape Plan. Oh, with, you mean with Schwarzenegger? Uh, sorry, yes, Schwarzenegger. Which, yes. which we did want to talk about for this, right? Uh, well, I mean, we are going to talk about it. Whether we want to or not is perhaps another <laughs> thing entirely. Yes. But it's got Vinnie Jones in it. It's therefore brilliant. Absolutely. Oh, I get it well, we can testify to that with the Steven Seagal commentary we recorded earlier, which we may <laughs> which we may put out as a subsequent commentary podcast <laughs> after this, this episode. Or we may not. Yeah, it's got Vinnie Jones in it, Drew, of course. That's that is the gold standard 
the gold standard. Yeah, Escape Plan then, in which uh, a very improbably plotted film, um, Stallone plays uh, a, a, a prison security advisor, I think is the best way to put him, a published author on prison security and prison design, whose job apparently is to go around being incarcerated in prisons and then proving that he can break his way out of them, which I'm not sure is intended as um, a service or an ego trip for him. <laughs> And I can't even remember the bizarre... I can't remember the reasons why, but there's some sort of double cross and he finds himself in... Money. It's always money. And it was money. Reason M. He finds himself incarcerated uh, and his contacts on the outside detached from him um, and with no way to communicate the fact that he is there purely on a work basis. He finds himself simply stuck among the the prison population of a maximum, maximum, maximum security plexiglass, silly, futuristic, daft, maximum plexiglass security prison. (laughs) It was an interesting film. I quite wish I hadn't watched this in the same night as Furious 7 because that, as it turns out, will be a night to remember for all the wrong reasons in my cinematic history. That's quite the double bill. It certainly is. Not one I would recommend anyone undertake. Uh, But yeah, I was hoping this was going to be in the same line of the Expendables. Obviously, I knew going into it not to expect too much. Uh, and boy did it <laughs> boy did it under deliver um, I hoped it might at least be a good amount of fun but then I realised I hadn't obviously known before that Jim Caviezel was uh, on the, the, the cast uh, another gold standard there Vinnie Jones and bizarrely Sam Neill trying to eke out some dignity from uh, yeah. from a role as a, as a prison doctor in which he's afforded very little opportunity to do anything other than Try and look sympathetic <laughs> and anguished and conflicted. Yeah, um, and, yeah. and one of the worst turns from Vincent D'Onofrio I've seen in a long time. Oh, of course, I forgot Vincent <laughs> D'Onofrio, who really, really has just painted eyeballs on his eyelids in this, right? <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> he just kind of sits there and sleep talks. Um, throughout. He is so disinterested in this, it is palpable. Palpable. Um, but I don't know, I mean, are there any, are there any, are there any merits to this film? I want to say it didn't get terrible, terrible reviews at the time. So, which is kind of why I thought, well, it can't be all that bad. But it's not that it, it's not that it was, it's not that it was risible. It was just, um, it's it was resoundingly average, uh, and it got to the point where a lot of the, the plot twists that it was coming up with are just, it's just t- for the sake of it, and it didn't really make any sense or yeah. change anything about anything. It was just there, but oh look, haven't we tricked you? So, well, not really. But but if you feel that way, go ahead. But yeah, it, it was not a horrible experience watching this. It just, it just didn't really work on a number of levels. I mean, particularly the, the double act between Stallone and Schwarzenegger just had no charisma at all. Mm. These guys were they were not bouncing off each other very well at all. No, like which was obviously the intention views. of it. I mean, if if they had, I mean, I don't, I don't know. Maybe, maybe maybe there's other situations where you put these two together in a room and they're they're, they're lively up and they're charismatic and conversation goes freely between them but the way this is written it really doesn't and here's here's the thing i think it's mainly stallone's fault and the reason i say that is because i watched this after i watched expendables 3 and actually more so than in the other expendables films i realized that schwarzenegger is actually quite a funny guy and he doesn't have a he doesn't have a problem lampooning himself and actually and while stallone probably is quite happy to poke fun at himself sort of knowingly he won't do it he won't do it in an outlandish way there are points in the Expendables 3, there's a bit where Schwarzenegger um, is on the helicopter and he shouts something, I can't remember, something. it's probably something, oh no, it's when he when he greets them all on the roof on the stairwell, towards the end, good morning! 
Good morning. Let's get to the chopper. Let's go. <laughs> and like he's outlandish, he's absolutely unhinged in places. He looks absolutely <laughs> manic. And I think actually he's proven himself to be quite a, quite a willingly comic character. And I actually really quite enjoyed aspects of that. And I think he's proven himself more capable by this point of that sort of thing than Stallone has. So although only one of them has an Oscar under his belt, and and by the way, what a year that must have been following Rocky, when people realised yeah. that his performance as a mumbling, stuttering clown was <laughs> oh, it's just that he's a mumbling, stuttering clown, all right. It's not it's not an acting performance then. At the very least, I think Schwarzenegger's up for some fun, whereas um, he managed to not have any fun whatsoever in this, as far as I could tell, and that's what it's sorely, sorely needed. My abiding memory of this will be, how can you make a film with that premise of a guy whose job it is to get stuck in prisons to, to prove that he can break his way out, stuck in a prison under some sort of nefarious circumstances, He's not. he doesn't know how the circumstances have arisen but he now has to find his way out without the the customary help um or the customary knowledge um and support from the outside and how do you make it that dull there's actually a really good movie to be had here and for some reason it, it makes several decisions to make certain aspects of the film needlessly overblown and unrealistic just to take you out of it such as the stupidly sort of futuristic design of the the prison and and various other elements of it and sort of weird sort of flamboyant touches um, around the uh, the ward and etc etc there are just all these strange little things that really it would have been better served without and yeah so like quite a missed opportunity actually yeah there's something in there that's perhaps why it doesn't you know, fall apart quite so much but it's just not executed particularly well none of the cast really stand out it's in my mind it's not a bad cast here at all mm. it's just a cast that really hasn't been given the either the motivation or the opportunity or the the wherewithal to actually come up with anything memorable yeah so mm. well they're not working from the best material are they no <sighs> i don't know I, who do we want to talk about next there's sort of three kind of archetypes in this. One is, as we're going to discuss with Stallone, he's someone who stepped away from the action arena and then came back. Uh, there's guys who really just never stopped. We just stopped paying attention to them. Guys like, as we mentioned, guys like, well, Dolph Lundgren, for one, and of course, <laughs> guys like Steven Seagal. They've kept on doing really the same stuff and never walked away from it, just mm. we have walked away from it. Mm. Um, then there's another case of guys who never were really known as action stars who all of a sudden now seems to be all they do and I'm thinking this instance of Liam Neeson who when he started started his action career was mainly doing straight roles there's normally I guess some small level of physicality involved in it there but I mean certainly these days he's now perhaps perhaps one of the the most prominent action stars that's around at the minute off the back of the Taken franchise well I think I mean let's let's remember that the guy began began his career in any sort of shape or form as a not as an actor but as a boxer so perhaps the more surprising thing is that he went into movies in a more serious dramatic um, sense uh, and, and fair play to him so perhaps we shouldn't be as surprised that he would at some point um take on the mantle of an action star it's, it's maybe just that we wouldn't have expected it to happen at this stage in his uh or at, you know at this age yeah exactly so we're certainly taken it's a long way from schindler's list isn't it <laughs> <laughs> well in some respects scott <laughs> yes in a few critical aspects uh, so i mean the, the I guess the the Taken franchise probably more than anything else is part of why we're sitting around talking about this to 
quite ludicrous uh, revenge fantasy of uh, the first one where Brian Mills, an ex-CIA black ops kind of fella, a uh, fixer, is taken uh, his life is thrown upside down when a, his, a man uh, with daughter, a very particular set of skills. Uh, yes, when his his daughter is kidnapped by a human trafficking ring in Paris. And so Liam Neeson goes to Paris and kills anyone who gets in his way. Mostly uh, Middle Eastern people. Yes, a surprising number of them who are knocking around. Very successful. I, I remember watching it and thinking it was okay at the time. I probably still just about think the first one can get away with it, but it is a very grim in places film. It has, it has no real grounding in reality, shall we put it that way. <laughs> it is, it is a clearly a daft film. That's why it was so entertaining. Um, I did watch it again recently, Not, I didn't like it quite so much, but I remember just thinking it was just, it's quite high concept, um, but fairly simple and suitably crunchy. I just, I remember us having a discussion at the time and I, I think I deviated from you guys and I just thought it was absolutely terrible to begin with. And I've never seen any redeeming quality in this movie. I'm not quite sure why, whether or not it's just that people have a fondness for for Liam Neeson and it bought him some favour. I just regard, I know people talk about, oh, Taken 2 was terrible, Taken 3 was even worse. I'm like, really? Because I thought Taken was, was a pretty <laughs> low, low benchmark to begin with. I honestly don't find it satisfying at all. I think a, a, a film which is so imaginative in its script that has a man go to Paris and utter the line, I'll, ta- I'll tear the Eiffel Tower down if I have to, Jean-Claude. Because that's... <laughs> because that's how, how original it is in both its geographical reference and how, how far they could be bothered coming up with authentic <laughs> French names for characters. There's a Jean-Claude and I'm pretty sure there's a Pierre in there as well. Um, and Alshanza Eurely say Jean-Claude. Exactly, yes. Um, I'll pap your noof the new. Um, <laughs> I'll pap you on den oof. Um yeah, I just honestly, I struggle to understand why. And in many respects, I know we, we touched base with uh, Rambo, first of all, um, but I think Taken followed that, right? Was Taken after uh, Rambo? Both 2008, I couldn't tell right. you offhand. Which because I want to say this was actually the tipping point in this for more people, because I think this film certainly has um, broader recognition than, uh, than Rambo did. I think this, more than any other, is perhaps responsible for the um, for the studios taking an interest in this kind of thing because Rambo itself wasn't a massive massive commercial success I don't think no. whereas Taken is one of those films that um, I, I'm not sure what the cinema run was like but certainly on um, on home formats it's very very much the Shawshank redemption of cheap action films Taken budget estimated at 25 million that's gross was 145 million US plus those after God that, knows so. what worldwide <laughs> yeah um, so that's a nice healthy return if you if, what is it one third one third production one third marketing and then if you make your third third if you <laughs> if you round the circle off at three times the original budget you've you've broken even is that the metric these days seems about right yeah three times budget to be declared even vaguely successful I think so it's certainly scored in that respect and I want to say that more than anything else convinced studios to actually start giving money to scripts which were probably some of which probably had been knocking around for a while and had just been yeah. been thrown in a drawing going what the guy's 60 what are you talking about <laughs> or perhaps they sort of brought them back out after this and went well the character was originally 20 but why don't we give it to 90 year old Harrison Ford to do <laughs> um, 
yeah, I just I just never saw any merit in the first Taken film at all. But I'm I'm willing to concede that I c- could well be wrong on that because I seem to be in the minority. Well, you alluded to Taken to not the well, most well regarded film, um, oh, largely bothered. because it is uh, much sillier. Uh, well, also, so just before you carry on, Scott, it's it's really important point about Taken to to the the first film, at least in this country, was in eighteen. It was very yeah. violent. The violence was... Arguably less violent than Expendables 3, but... Uh, but the violence of Taken was A, the point, and B, the appeal. That That's <laughs> why that film worked, why it was entertaining, why it was popular. And so for the second film, they reduced the violence, reduced the rating, and brought in a director who has stated publicly several times he doesn't like violent films. I, I, I just speechless. I don't understand the thinking behind that. No, uh, if you don't like violent films, you should never have taken this job on anyway. You clearly have no integrity. Yeah, which is unusual given uh, g- given the kind of films he chooses to direct. Yeah. Yeah. I don't like violent films. I know I'll do Transporter 3. Okay, Olivier Megaton, if that is your real name. <laughs> <laughs> which I doubt. Yeah, Taken 2 is essentially the same crap, but in Istanbul. My abiding memory of it, I, did, I chose not to go back and rewatch this, so my abiding memory of it remains the uh, grenade-based echolocation that is used at one point, which is a a bit of an adhere for action cinema as a whole, in my estimation. <laughs> yes, it, it's essentially a retread of everything that the first film did, but not as good, and is rightly slated along those lines, so... yeah. Certainly not one that I can possibly recommend. Boo and Taken Three, which again I just haven't given any consideration to. I refuse to watch. Taken Three, you you could certainly make a case for it being better than Taken Two. Um, <laughs> it, it is. It's uh, slightly better than Cancer. Its main problem is that it's not really a Taken film in any notable sense. It, it, it has a very different structure to the point where it is basically a, a kind of different film with the same characters. It's a rather more straightforward tale. He's, in this one, he's more accused of a murder that he didn't commit and he's trying to clear his own name. But it doesn't have quite the same driving impact of you know his family being in danger or anything like that. It's not quite so you know driven in that regard. Also a bit of a downer as our uh, favourite, Dougray Scott has returned. Yeah, uh, This time playing the... Fresh, fresh off MI2. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I literally don't know of a film that he's been in in between. <laughs> in this instance, Dougray Scott is not the best thing about a film. Boom. Um, it, he, in many ways, he's the least thing about the film. Boom. So that's a bit of a pest, because given he does play a very pivotal role in it, uh, certainly towards the end of the film. Yeah. Um, Basically, Liam Neeson has been tracked down by Forrest Whitaker as the cop, and he's been on the trail of him, and it just kind of becomes a, a, a relatively standard manhunt film. It's you know, not a million miles away from something like The Fugitive in, in terms of what it's trying to do, and just not doing it quite so effectively. It's fine. I think it's, it's reasonably entertaining. It's certainly much better than two. Uh, it bears almost no relation to one, but it's still a fine enough film to pass uh, the 90 minutes or whatever the running time is. But it uh, is difficult to get very worked up about it. Yeah. Yeah. I don't. I don't know if anyone else has watched that. Uh, uh, that from the mind of Luke was on. <laughs> from the mind. Remember when I remember when that used to be something you looked forward yeah, to. Yeah. And then yeah. there was Lucy. <laughs> yes. Yes, there was. Uh, well, and while we're on a Neeson uh, tip, then did we want to talk about Run All Night? Yes, I mean, which for, which for me was an, an arguably better example um, of the genre than any of his 
well, I say any of us taking films have only seen the one, so it'd be disingenuous to say that. But it was at least enjoyable and about, I think, probably about as well done as this kind of thing can be. Yeah, I mean, Neeson, you know, he was always mixing up his roles. There's, uh, for every one garbage action film he's done, there's been some big budget garbage, like Wrath of the Titans and Battleship. But there's mm. been the odd sort of low budget thing that's worked really well, like The Grey. The Grey and, and even non-action related stuff like, uh, I suppose, Kinsey and whatnot, right? Yeah, so at least I think the run all night falls into the kind of it falls kind of between the indie and action film stool so it's kind of a, I guess a sweet spot for him he's a ex-mafia hitman now a, now a drunk estranged from his kid who winds up having to go up against his boss after his uh, his boss's son tries to frame his uh, his son for a murder uh, it's more or less how, how that works out and so again it's just a chase drama more than anything else as he's uh, running across New York trying to keep his kid out of danger. And I think this one works quite well. Again, another pretty solid cast. Uh, Liam Neeson, you know, Ed Harris and Joel Kinnaman, um, mm-hmm. all of whom do very well. Nice to see Bruce McGinn, uh, Bruce McGill every now and again. Yeah. And again, Vincent D'Onofrio. The second <laughs> yeah. <difference> for him. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's, it's a solid cast. It takes something that is eh, probably a fairly gen- generic script. I'm sure of, I can't think of any immediately, but I'm sure oh, I've seen things generic. like this before. Uh, oh, but, so, uh, someone said to me recently, oh, it's it's literally just a remake of, and the, um, the film's gone right out of my head. West Side Story. Sharks and Jets. No, um, sorry, not necessarily a remake of, but I remember what it is. It's very, very close in plot to um, the Shark road, to, road to Perdition. <laughs> right, okay. <laughs> Which I can see certain elements of, although I'd argue that's a massively, massively better <laughs> film. <laughs> um, yes. But, um, that would not be a controversial argument, I don't think. But <laughs> No, but some, sometimes you talk about a film being serviceable in sort of a, in a, in a downhearted way, yeah. um, or certainly a, in a perfunctory way, whereas this is kind of serviceable, but in that, in that good way. Um, yes. Where it's hard to imagine it having been done a lot better. It kind of makes the most of the material at hand. Material, sorry, at hand. Crucially for me, like I remember a time when uh, Ed Harris's name on a billing was again like a, a pretty much a, a, a seal of approval, right? A seal of quality. Yeah. Um, and arguably, that's not been true in recent years. He's one of those actors who you thought would never sort of betray his own integrity, but but clearly has with any number of direct video appearances and schlock stuff um, over recent years. Um, and here, while he sort of appears as this character who, you know, with this sort of violent past, who just looks tired and basically just wants a quiet life, that kind of plays yeah. into his hands as an actor at this point. Because the best thing he does now is act tired and um, <laughs> in, in want of a quiet life. So um, it would have been very easy for him to have dialed in his performance in this movie And to his credit, he kind of doesn't He kind of at least puts a bit of effort into it And I want to say that more than anything else carries this But certainly there are some interesting elements to the film It sounds very perfunctory on paper But it's surprisingly effective as a thriller actually Um, And I think because a lot of the people involved are... Like you say, like a cast of reasonably well-known names, but there's no one A-list here apart from Neeson himself. Actually, it keeps you guessing because one or two things happen in this film, and you think to yourself, "Well, I wouldn't, I wouldn't put, it, I wouldn't put it past this film for it not to end the way I'm expecting it to end." Yeah. So it does at least sort of keep you guessing a little bit. Yeah, and the director Jean Collet Serra has done a number of films that have actually been relatively well regarded. 
and he's coming a long way from House of Wax in 2005. Mm. Um, but uh, I, I don't think I've seen Nonstop, but I don't recall that being too badly received. But Unknown back in 2011 was also, again, a fairly generic... Uh, generic and a bit far-fetched, yeah. But uh, but again, quite effective. He, he knows how to pace things uh, well enough, and uh, this is... You can kind of plot an arc there right through those films. I haven't seen Nonstop, but as you say, if, if I take it on faith, you can see the sort of process by which he's sort of distilled his technique down to the point where in this it's kind of... It's not um, it's not cookie-cutter, it's not a template thing, but he's ve- it's very, very efficient. Yes. It's n- there's not a lot of fat on this, and it's sort of... It's, it's reasonably interesting visually. It, I feel like effort has been put into this, even if it's not the greatest film that's ever been made. I kind of feel that a sincere level of effort has been made on all parts, uh, both the cast and the crew, and that he, you know, it's no one's just taken this for the paycheck, which you might have otherwise expected. But yeah, surprisingly effective, and um, I enjoyed it far more than I expected to. I didn't actually have all that many intentions to watch it until my wife announced that she would quite like to see it. Um, mm. So I thought, yeah, we don't get to sit and we don't get to sit and watch much stuff together these days. So come on, uh, let's pop it, let's pop it on. And I was uh, I was pleasantly surprised. Yeah, I found it a very engaging watch. I've no regrets about seeing it. It's one of the better films, I think, of the the ones we've been talking about. It's uh, as as we said, nothing outstandingly new or original but it works very well at what it's trying to do yeah and the first film that i've knowingly seen joel kinnaman in as well because i didn't i haven't yet seen the robocop remake so and he was perfectly he was perfectly uh, good in this um not uh oscar standards but he he did as much as was required by the script he did it very efficiently and very well so i shall i shall pay attention to more of his work in future yeah certainly this is a much better film than robocop was so yeah, it's got that going for it, but that's not really saying very much. Um, <laughs> Maybe a future podcast there, Stop Remaking My Childhood. Yes, <laughs> I can see that happening. So who else have we got? We've talked about Liam Neeson, Sylvester Stallone, I suppose. We can't <laughs> we can't skip over Arnie. We've already mentioned him a few times. He, yep. of course, took a break for entirely different reasons as he yes. was off uh, governating. And yeah, he's now recently returned to the fold. Uh, we spoke in a, or I spoke at least in a previous podcast about the the latest Terminator film, which he's he has returned to with mixed results. But uh, he's you certainly can't keep him down. And, uh, probably perhaps not much point going over that again. But um, he's been in other films, I guess. I think most of us have. I think we've all seen. And certainly, me and Drew have seen the the Last Stand, which was his, probably his first return to the. I haven't watched it yet. This is the one with Johnny Knoxville, right? Yes. Yeah. And a ridiculously large gun. <laughs> a large gun. How unusual. Oh, queer. Yeah, so I mean, that was very much his, his first one. Is he a small town sheriff who stands up to the leader of a Mexican cartel when one of their leaders busts out of prison? I forget exactly which, but they're, they're on a, a crash course straight through his small town and he decides to put up some barriers to stop him. And uh, it's very small in scope but it's surprisingly quite effective in what it does it's uh, it's difficult to defend the casting of Johnny Knoxville in anything really um, <laughs> <laughs> so, well, I don't know Bad Grandpa was really rather good yeah I suppose there is that it's something that surprisingly worked quite well uh, not again the most A-list cast you can imagine I mean I guess the biggest star after uh, Arnie is probably Louise Guzman in it it worked quite well for what it did. It was uh, certainly by no means Arnie's greatest film, but it displayed a reasonable amount of charisma and uh, a few decent action scenes, so fair play to him for that. It's uh, certainly seen 
far worse films and for uh, him to come back uh, from a long period of absence with this it works quite well uh, directed by Ji-Woon Kim who we will know most from things like A Tale of Two Sisters and of course I Saw the Devil which is one of the most ludicrous films I've seen <laughs> in some time L- ludicrous, depressing, downbeat that's a director we may have to come back to at some point, things like was that one, A Bittersweet Life, he's, he's got The Good, The Bad, The Weird, there's some he does some very interesting films. This is arguably the, the least interesting of them, uh, in as much as it's fairly <laughs> almost grounded in reality compared to what he's done previously. Uh, but yeah, interesting director, but uh, maybe not one of his most interesting films. Yeah, so it looks like Arnie's back. Uh, Terminator Genesis aside, uh, he's clearly uh, back in back in the games he's rumoured to be uh, going up for the legend of Conan now which is wow I'm not sure how that'll work out um, <laughs> I'm not sure it will let's, badly <laughs> let, let's see if that's going to be better or worse the other thing he's got up, he's up for which is triplets where he no. reprises his role as Julius is, Benedict is, Tunes. is the Conan thing just going to be him sitting in like a Christmas jumper on a rocking chair with a brandy sort of laughing away and reminiscing about his time <laughs> as Conan <laughs> let me tell you about the legend <laughs> What is best in life is preparation H. <laughs> I imagine that's how it goes. Uh, <laughs> and to hear um, somebody, the, the, your enemies say, would you like a nice cup of tea, Arnold? Oh, I'd love a nice cup of tea. Wouldn't that be nice? It's a stupid question. Who wouldn't like a nice cup of tea? I've missed a reference there somewhere again. Look, we're making up our own references. <laughs> uh, you know, charging forward. More of a guy, certainly someone who's never stopped working, but is not really not someone who you'd perhaps have for action roles these days would be Harrison Ford, but he just keeps making movies. Uh, he does. Well, he's been in quite a few things that have had some degree of action, but I suppose the one that's in recent terms that is the most obvious would be Indiana Ooh. Jones and the Crystal Skull as he returns to that franchise and oh. to, to much disappointment all around. Well... Look, the merits of the film aside, of which there are none. Um, let's just let's just set that stall out very early. What a bloody, what a travesty of a film! Even at the point at which that came out in two thousand and eight, two thousand and eight. So what? The same year as did we say Rambo was the same year? Yes. Was taken. Yes. So even at that point, out of all the people we're talking about, he, even then he easily looked the most frail and incapable at this kind of thing of any of the people mm. we're talking about tonight and that for me is the most um, the most damning thing um, so Kingdom of the Crystal Skull uh, for many many reasons is inferior to the rest of the Indiana yeah. Jones franchise I mean just on that, we did mention it at the time but I mean part of the reason that the Arnold Schwarzenegger films and the Sylvester Stallone films still work is that these guys look like they could quite easily rip my head off Oh they're so still we, in they're still in clearly better physical shape than I'll ever be Oh yeah, absolutely amazing shape Yes, I wouldn't spill any of their pints Yeah, whereas Harrison Ford looks more like you would expect someone of his age to look Yes, which, like you could take him with one hand tied behind your back <laughs> Yeah, yeah. And the other, the other hand, clutching a copy of Kingdom of the Crystal Skull, shouting, "Why, Harrison? Why, why?" And perhaps the most disturbing thing is that they're still touting the fact that there may be a fifth Indiana Jones as well, um, involving Harrison Ford, which I just cannot at this point believe. 
I cannot believe. So let's just hope that never comes to fruition. Yeah, very much the uh, the indicator of what can go wrong with uh, with old man action. I think this film uh, clearly clearly beyond his capabilities in terms of the physical requirements of the role, and also his sort of what what I perceive to be his tiredness as a human being and his tiredness with the movie game, uh, meaning that the the edge has been taken off the sort of the the pithy yeah. comic aspect of his character, the uh, the smart ass persona very much muted in this and his engagement with other characters suitably suitably underwhelming whereas that has actually been the stock and trade of the franchise up to this point and so much of it is uh, yeah. Ford's obvious obvious charisma when he's firing on uh, on all cylinders uh, as he did in the previous three films the uh, yeah this was by far and away the most disappointing return to uh, to action movies for any of the, the the people we've spoken about tonight in my opinion yeah it often seems like Ford's got two seconds he's either very charismatic or essentially dead and this yeah, is yeah. this is closer to the second half of this one isn't it I remember I mean I cut this film every possible bit of slack I could to try and like it because you know you, you, you're a better human being than I am. Well, it's, you just I just had the expectation one that it won't be the won't be the same, but it could at least be good enough. And it, I think, probably the structure of it and the actual bones of it, taken as an academic exercise, there's nothing in here that's more or less ridiculous than you had in all the other films. But it just isn't any fun, really, when no. you put it back in. And because it's no fun, you, it can't get away with the same things that other uh, installments might have been able to. I mean, in other films, <laughs> might have let it get away with things like. Um, Sheila Booth fella mm, swinging mutt. across the jungle with his uh, his army of baboons behind him. <laughs> but I should do. It, it just looked a bit. It just it just seemed a bit silly in this film. And um, you know things like uh, Ray Winston's constant flip flopping as whether he's to whose side he's on didn't really. It didn't ratchet up any tension really. Just disinterest. Poor old John Hurt's just reduced to ranting in a corner. I'm ever so slightly distracted. Um because all I could think of was that bloody gopher, but mm-hmm. have you mentioned the accent? Of the accents, not one of which is from the planet Earth. Kate Blanchett, the psychic Nazi. Yes. There's not really much more the, to say the than it's incredibly the terrible. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's, it's properly, properly... Um, sorry, sorry, stop, Drew, stop, stop, back up, back up, back up, back up, back up, back up. I said, the third eye of the third Reich. <laughs> I'm quite proud of that. Sorry, it's taken me seven years to think of it, but <laughs> and those years have been wasted. <laughs> <laughs> Back to the drawing board, eh? <laughs> yeah, no, there were a multitude of things wrong with that movie, but um, you know, a, a committed performance from a Harrison Ford twenty years younger might have uh, might have carried it. Unfortunately, on this occasion, it did not. Harrison Ford believing in the script may have done it. I think. Yeah. Yeah, it, it seems to me that he, that was part of it that he simply didn't believe in the script because, I mean, I remember the time thinking Aliens is a stupid thing. Thinking, wait a minute, I've seen the other films. It's not any more or less stupid. It was it's just the way it was handled. I think. <laughs> oh, plus the gophers and the CGI monkeys and Kate Blanchett's accent. <laughs> I find you can let away with the other films with uh, their preposterous endings because they've built up so much goodwill by being brilliant all the way throughout the rest of it. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Um, and it's not something you get in this from the outset. It's designed to basically just be kind of silly. I mean, I, I, as you mentioned, Drew, I cannot understand why they put that gopher in. What, what is the point of this stupid obsession with CG gophers? <laughs> I don't know if I'd call it an obsession because it's the only one in the movie. But <laughs> well, 
it was it was given more prominent screen time than a lot of other main characters. And I don't understand it. Well, the Does thing it? that the thing that <laughs> the thing that annoyed me about it, of course, we spoke about it at the time, was that Spielberg had gone out of his way to say that look, this will be a film of practical stunts and as little as CG as possible, and it yeah. opens with a bad CG shot of an unnecessary yeah. gopher and only gets worse from there. My abiding memory of this film will always be that after we saw that in Glasgow together, the three of us, I came, I drove back down here a couple of days later and then I was through in Manchester in the Trafford Centre and I went to HMV and I picked up the box set of the uh, the uh, Indiana Jones on DVD up until that point and I took it to the counter and the young lady who served me asked, have you seen the new film? And I said, yes, yes, I have. And that's why I'm buying this now before it becomes four discs. <laughs> so I guess for all our sanities, we should perhaps move on from this catastrophe before we start talking about his impending role in the next Star Wars film, which I don't think anyone's looking forward to. Um, <laughs> let's, uh, well, let's, let's circle back to good old Bruce Willis. We'll maybe chat a little bit about... Uh, Denzel Washington first. Oh yeah, I'd almost forgotten her, Denzel. Yeah, because again, another guy who you would not necessarily have pegged as being an action star. I mean, the Pelican and, Brief, Philadelphia, all these kind of things. Not and renowned. probably not now. Yeah, mm. <laughs> and uh, yeah, I felt like Man on Fire would have been his last kind of role in this in that kind of vein. Yep, um, but he keeps putting these things on things like a you know, the extent uh, American Gangster. Taking a film one, two, three. Book of Eli was quite action focused and also terrible. Uh, <laughs> Truly awful, yes. Yeah. So I mean, he's still mixing in things like Flight, which is a bit more character heavy and certainly much better film. But I think perhaps what we're most interested in here is not the not the together together at last Denzel Washington and Mark Wahlberg outing two guns, but uh, the Equalizer of twenty fourteen, uh, which due for a sequel soon. But he's taken up the role of Edward Woodward as he mm. puts together his, his his past to help out communities. And, uh, yeah, I, I was surprised at how well this worked. Um, yeah. Antoine Fuck was uh, outings, yep. and uh, I was pleasantly surprised by how good it is. Foucault himself is a, a guy who's had a fairly up-and-down, in my opinion, uh, yeah. relationship with his, the quality of his films, but I think The Equalizer is certainly one of his better films. I think it helps in we've said this several times I think over the years but Denzel Washington is is somebody who's very reliably good but more importantly mm. he is one of those people who is always able to rise above the quality of the material he's in mm-hmm. yeah. not that the equaliser was by any means terrible but it could have been fairly ordinary without him but he can lift everything and it doesn't help that he somehow looks 20 years younger than he actually is Mm, yeah, um, helping to sell his action man role, but it's just there's something about Denzel Washington, and it's more than simply acting ability. I think a lot is charisma, which is obviously much harder to define, unless you're Dennis Quaid, of course, in which it's quite easy to define because you define it as none. Um, <laughs> Where did that come from, man? <laughs> not that you Dennis Quaid's my charisma yardstick at all or anything, you know. But. <laughs> Any opportunity to stick the knife into Quaid is certainly up for it. Um I have to I have to disagree with you guys. I I was really disappointed by this and I thought he pretty much phoned in his performance. Um I think if anything works about this, it's his physical presence. I I didn't find him to rise above the, the script at all. I think a large problem with this film is that it's almost half an hour too long. 
um, it needed to be much shorter but I it was kind of very ploddingly paced and unsatisfying and the 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 violence when it arrived in most places felt kind of just nasty there was stuff in there that I felt I'm really puzzled as to why they felt the need to make this the equaliser because it bears no semblance whatsoever to the uh, to the source material being the Edward Woodward TV series um, pretty much in anything other than name and that you know this is a guy who goes out of his way to help people because uh, last I recalled uh, McCall was a guy who ran an agency who people you know who advertised in a newspaper and people came to but that's that's what this film seems to be setting up or it hints at in the end but um, uh, for me this was just really I I thought this was really bog standard fare I actually enjoyed Run All Night far more than I, I, I enjoyed this and for all his for his talents, because uh, Denzel Washington really is one of those rare actors who combines a physicality that suits him well in roles like this, um, with the sort of acting capabilities that he's displayed in films like Do the Right Thing, um, and most recently, I suppose, in Flight. He is really one of the most versatile actors there has been for a generation, and I just didn't feel like he was invested in this at all. And I th- I thought probably below average on Antoine Fuqua's oh no actually I forget I forget why, I forget Olympus has fallen yeah, you're so right this is above average for Antoine he, he has a, he has a few millstones dragging his average down uh, yeah, doesn't he? he he really does actually I'd forgotten about that um, I found this tremendously engaging, I guess mainly because Denzel Washington did seem quite engaged with it. I thought he looked like he was having a, a good time for most of this, and I thought that carried through to most of the action. It, it certainly could, I do agree, it could it could do with being somewhat shorter. It yeah. uh, does have a few points that might drag a little bit, but uh, on the whole, I thought the cast did quite well. Got a reasonably effective bad guy in uh, Marton. Uh, Chokas, yeah, sure that's that right. Chokas, I believe, or something quite close to yeah. that. Anyway, who, yeah. was, who was, in fairness, suitably menacing. Yeah. Although the very, the very final act of this film, the denouement of this, um, if we are supposed to believe that a man such as he somehow found his way into the personal abode of a of a heavily guarded uh, Russian oligarch to carry out the kind of mayhem that he did. Uh, Pushing the pushing the boat out a lot, stretching credibility a little too far. But there you go. I found the rest of it to be a bit silly, to be honest with you. But there you go. I can see that. So I guess we'll round things off by talking about your boy Bruce Willis. My boy, I believe, I believe is Craig's uh, favourite human. <laughs> he certainly <laughs> certainly used to be. I'm not so I'm not so sure about that in latter years. <laughs> but keep in keep in mind that I am the person who absolutely adores Hudson Hawk. <laughs> <laughs> So yeah, no, I've, yeah. I've been a, I've been a fan of Bruce Willis since I can remember. He's very much my role model for having lost my hair with dignity. Uh, he, is, <laughs> he is the reason why, at a certain point, I just went shave it off. Uh, he was he was very much the uh, in mind when I did that. Uh, you're you're very much forgetting bandits then. <laughs> Um, which I've only watched about the first half hour of and then I decided my feelings for Bruce are better served by pretending that film didn't happen <laughs> um, I'm not the biggest fan of Kate Blanchett either to be honest with you so I had all sorts of compelling reasons to uh, to press stop um, yeah. Bruce falls into that category of you know person who just never stopped um, no. he's had a much greater hit rate of producing something that is not dreadful throughout that time so he, yeah. he's never really stopped making action films uh, the two I guess obvious ones to talk about in this context is Red and Red 2 mm-hmm. simply because the whole premise of him being a retired CIA agent and all that kind of thing gels quite well with him they are 
both comic book adaptations and I think work quite well. They are suitably ludicrously over the top, but I found both of them to be an incredible amount of fun. I don't think there's a, a lot of mileage in talking about them, but I think they work quite mm. well for what they set out to do. Both quite amusing. Clearly comedy action rather than action uh, by itself. There's not an awful lot of drama to be had in there, but there's a, a good few laughs and a good interesting number of action. What's, what's interesting about those films is that he is arguably one of the weaker links in it, though, because I don't feel like he displays his trademark... Well, not trademark, but he's... He can certainly be a very charismatic and funny guy. He's got comedy in his roots. And yeah. I feel like he could have done better in, in both of these movies, to be honest with you. I feel like he maybe wasn't as invested as as he could have been. And he could have been better films if, again, he had been firing on even half of his cylinders or, or just over half of them. I'm not sure how many cylinders he has, so don't, <laughs> I'm not going to go into more detail than that. <laughs> I'm, already, I'm already trying to rationalise a very silly statement um, yeah I feel, I feel like he could have made a bigger effort and that bizarrely um, he is probably the the weaker link in this. I mean, look at someone like John Malkovich and just how insanely invested he is in, in playing yeah. an absolute and I mean he's a guy you'd never expect in your life to phone in a performance or have any time for this kind of nonsense whatsoever and even he seems willing to make um to poke fun at himself, whereas I, I found Bruce Willis a little bit earnest and a little bit more of the the moonlighting, wisecracking Bruce would have served us a little bit better. Mm. Yeah, he's a little poor-faced in some of it, it's fair to say, I think. Yeah, yeah, but I'd, but um, very entertaining films, actually, and probably yeah, probably greater than some of their parts, to be honest. I mean, they're, they're impressive cast list aside. Again, not the, not the greatest of scripts in, in most cases and whatnot, but... Um, Yes, enter- entertaining. I mean, we 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 can't just skip over a good day to die hard, right? Much as you would like to. Um, no, much I mean, as even I would want to. Yes. Yeah, I mean, as two most recent kind of big budgets things would have been Looper, which we've oh, of course, in a, in a yeah. previous podcast life we've kind of discussed to death. But I don't think there's a I don't think there's much to bones with about Bruce Willis's performance in that film. I think he. Uh, he well, does he quite himself well described it. it as the bit at the time as the best thing he'd ever done, right? Which I think is paying short thrift to Twelve Monkeys, mm. which I think is e- equally okay. as as good, if not even better. But um, yeah, it was the best thing that he's done by a country mile, I think, in recent years. Even if the film itself disappointed me in some respects. Yes, um, and a good day to die hard, of course. The <sighs> the latest in the instalment. I, I I still stand by the fact that I don't think Die Hard four point zero or Live Free or Die Hard or whatever you want to call it. Was that bad? Uh, mm-hmm. I thought it was. Yeah, I thought it, was it was good. It was especially good given the story by Len Wiseman. It, it was actually quite passive. It was probably the yes. best thing he's done. Yes. So comfortably. Yeah. Whereas, a good day to die hard just didn't really work on a, on a great number of levels. Uh, perhaps the thing that tipped me off about this being a bit strange, and not quite so good, was when it starts off with John McClane going out looking for trouble, which he never does in all the rest of it, because it's always <laughs> trouble happening from the rest of the him. franchise. Yeah. Yeah. He's kind of like on Craigslist looking for trouble. Yeah, but he just doesn't seem you know as good a cop as John McClane is. He doesn't seem like the kind of person that would have it in his head to go to Russia and uh, do what he does a fight. in this film. Because yes. it, it, it does seem like it's a script where they wanted to have him as some sort of CIA operative despite the fact that he's not a CIA operative and they've just ignored that and went ahead with it anyway. Yeah. And it, it's raising the stakes in a way that didn't seem, and I, I don't like using the word in terms of this, believable. There is at least a patina <laughs> of believability to the things that happened in the other Die Hard films. You can see roughly how an ordinary cop would get into these situations, but that is certainly not present in A Good Day to Die Hard. 
And I'd, and a lot of the blame as well, to be honest with you, I think, shoehorning Jai Courtney in there. Will people stop giving Jai Courtney work, please? Yes, yeah. please. Let's stop that now. The charismatic monolith <laughs> from the start of 2001 without the <laughs> without the importance of the monolith from 2001. He's up there with Sam Worthington and Dennis Quaid, as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> yes. <laughs> the, the unholy trinity there. I know who's at the top of that pyramid, obviously, Drew. But <laughs> <laughs> obviously. Well, actually, I don't know. Um, uh, you could have Sam Worthington and um, uh, Dennis Quaid fight it out for top dog, actually. Hmm. That would be an interesting fight. <laughs> I think interesting would be the very last thing that a fight would be, or anything to do with them in any way. Yeah, really disappointing. And the only action film in history that um, my wife fell asleep during. There you go. Uh, <laughs> during the big car chase scene at the start, which I think at the time I described as the loudest 12 minutes of cinema in history. <laughs> and my wife, who, who was admittedly pregnant at the time, <laughs> fell asleep in the middle of it. I mean, it's certainly a film that doesn't want for chaos there's an awful lot of action happening here it's yeah. just very difficult to actually and, care and about the, any the kicker of it. of it is I remember when the trailer came out watching the trailer and thinking this actually looks like it'll be a good deal of fun in the way that 4 was as well there's a yeah. good deal of sort of um, Bruce Willis sort of wisecracking and just smirking and looking like he might actually have been enjoying himself and then you realise actually after you've seen the film that those are the precious few seconds in which he smiled and looked like he was enjoying himself and the rest of it is just utterly utterly serviceable Tosh, which largely lands on the shoulders of, as we say, the, the charismatic black hole that is Jai Courtney. And I do wonder exactly how this wound up in director John Moore's lap. It's uh, mm. he's, he's had a strange career path. If you go from Behind Enemy Lines, Flight of the Phoenix, the remake of The Omen, mm-hmm. Max Payne, and then a five-year gap to A Good Day to Die Hard, and that's that's a strange arc as well. Yeah, mm. really weird actually. And and Behind Enemy Lines, for all its flaws, was actually at the time I thought a fairly enjoyable film. Yeah. And uh, I think I want to say I saw that remake of Flight of the Phoenix as well, and it, which was I, I know it starred your best friend Drew. <laughs> yes, I was just thinking, just remembering Quaid. that. Yes, I remember who was in. Quaid is Quaid is pie, really, isn't he? He's everything. <laughs> He's everything. I'm starting. I'm suddenly beginning to realise. Um, but yeah, I mean, I as it stands now, the um, I think Die Hard, uh, a good day to Die Hard, is noticeable or notable rather. Sorry, uh, only in my mind for being, I think, the last film ever to be shot on Fuji film stock. That does not make it a better film. No. <laughs> Uh, it's a desperate, desperate attempt for me to make my boy Bruce have at least some sort of uh, footnote in there. What well, it might just have made it the nail in the coffin. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, Which is not to say that Willis is irredeemable. He's he still shows up in a number of uh, quite interesting films. Yeah, and he's still got the physicality, and when he wants to, he can still have that charisma. There is, I maintain that under the right circumstances, there is um, still a good diehard film to be made. I would argue that it should probably be the last one, and if only to to bring the franchise to a more satisfying conclusion than this entry has. But it it, it really increasingly would rely on some sort of spectacular planetary alignment at this point, which <laughs> I, I it's not that I don't have the faith in him. I just don't have the faith in the studio system to to deliver that to us at this point. So unless you want to make it as some sort of small independent film, <laughs> then I don't. I fear that I'm not going to get my wish. But um, it will be interesting to see what what he decides to do next, uh, assuming it's not all direct-to-video, because he certainly seems to have made a lot of DTV films, particularly with 50 Cent. Yes, uh, a puzzling choice. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, but but between that, there's always the interesting things like for for want of its execution at points, you know, the, the Sin City film is still uh, one of the more interesting films you can watch. It's uh, certainly unique in terms of what's out there. The only thing like it is, of course, the first film. So yes, he's he's still attracted to the occasional uh, interesting proposition, things like this, things like Looper, and you just need to things like Red, of course, Red One, Red Two, both very enjoyable films. You just need to. Keep your eyes peeled and avoid the things like G.I. Joe retaliation. <laughs> and your, Don't you worry, and, I shall. And your your Willis experience shall be unblemished. Yay! I think that just about wraps it up then, right? All, all we've got to do now is, have you listened through that commentary yet, Scott, that we recorded? Yes, I think we'll... I haven't we'll, listened I haven't listened back to it yet, but all, all that means is for us to make the decision on whether we pull the trigger on posting that or not. Yes, whether we decide to inflict uh, <laughs> a Steven Seagal film on you, we've re- recorded a, yes. a commentary already for the his his excellent uh, vehicle mercenaries absolution featuring your man Vinnie Jones, everyone's <laughs> man Vinnie Jones, and a, a true hallmark of quality that is. Yeah. Here's the and, thing, um, I... St- Still, I'm pretty sure I've never ever seen a Steven Seagal film. And shut up! You've never seen Under Siege. No, I told you before. I don't, what? I think I've seen bits and pieces here and there. I'm pretty sure I've never seen Under Siege. Um, <gasps> so, but I think it's maybe it's maybe Vinnie Jones being in it that may tip me over. I may finally have to watch a, a Steven Seagal film. It's got Vinnie Jones in it too. Don't, please, Drew, don't make that <laughs> mistake. <laughs> if you're telling me you've never seen Under Siege, I could make massive, massive hints as to which the only Seagal film you should watch is. <laughs> and it's the one Drew, with Vinnie Jones in it, right? It's Under Siege. If I told you Vinnie Jones was in it at the very end, so you had to watch the whole damn thing before you were brutally crushed by disappointment, would that help? I, I don't know. Vinnie Jones is in it as an angry torpedo. <laughs> there you go. Oh, See if you can a... spot him, Drew. It's a cameo role. <laughs> um, yeah, Jones. I suppose in keeping with our, our theme of having these themed podcasts and then choosing an outlier to the to the topic and recording a commentary on it, we have recorded a commentary for that particular Steven Seagal film. Uh, it just remains to be <laughs> it just remains to be decided whether or not it's suitable for public consumption. <laughs> And I fear that if we decide it is, and you you decide counter to that that it's not, it's not really our fault so much as the films. <laughs> <laughs> I certainly can't recommend that you take part in it. So yes, that's your lot. We'll be back uh, with that commentary on the tenth of this month, and we'll have the intermission up on the twentieth. So until that time. I have been Scott Morris. Thank you very much for listening. If you want to hit us up sometime, you can get us on Twitter. That's at FudsOnFilm. You can get us on Facebook, which is facebook.com slash FudsOnFilm. Or send us an email, podcast at FudsOnFilm.com. We'd love to hear what you think about anything. It doesn't even need to be film-related. Do leave us an iTunes review. No, if you could. I don't even care how many stars. Till next time, I've been Scott. Fairly well. And Craig Eastman says goodbye. Stoke that. And Drew Tavendale also says goodbye. Adios. Your Spanish is coming on. (laughs) 